G'day and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. Welcome to a special two-part episode. In fact, this is part two of a two-part episode exploring virtual reality or VR experiences in museums. I'm being joined today by a special guest co-host being Desi Gonzalez. Desi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I am really good. So in our last episode, we spoke to Michael Haley Goldman about the work that is happening at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And we also spoke to Kai Frazier, who is running a VR startup called Curated by Kai. What were your big takeaways from that, those discussions? Or is there anything that has come out of those discussions that you're still thinking about? Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of really great thoughts from the both of them in terms of uh, how they are, uh, you know, exploring this new, this relatively young medium that uh, a lot of different industries and sectors are trying to figure out how to use. Uh, one one question that I had asked Kai at one point during our interview, which if you haven't listened to it, I recommend you go back and listen to it. Um, we asked Kai, uh, you know, what are examples? She's out there working with classes, creating kind of a more DIY. Why, uh, you know, 360 uh, kind of VR experiences. And I asked her, what's a, a, a virtual reality experience that she's found powerful that's out there somewhere in the world? Um, she brought up this one uh, piece that I've been dying to see uh, called Carne y Arena. It's by, um, produced by the, the director Alejandro Iñárritu, and it's been on view um, in Los Angeles and D.C., all over the world, um, and, and has received an Academy Award for, um, for kind of its, its groundbreaking work. Um, so that was uh, really great to hear her say that because we actually uh, were planning to talk to another person who was going to take a deep dive into that work, uh, and that's Paisley Smith. Yeah, absolutely. You and I have both been trying to get in to see or experience that uh, VR film and neither of us have been able to. So quick shout out to anyone who has uh, access. Desi and I both <laughs> want to go. So if you can make that happen, please do. Um, but this is a really interesting conversation. I think Paisley had written a great blog post that you had pointed me to really talking about the experience Um from where it starts, which is well before the headset goes on, all the way through to its end point. And it really, I think this conversation gives a lot for museums who are planning these experiences to think about that embodied experience and how they can create sensory or environmental, um, really threshold and entry uh, experiences that support and surround the VR experience to make it much more impactful, I think, than the film in and of itself. Yeah, and and this, um, you know, Garni Arena deals with difficult subject matter. When we were talking to uh, Michael in the previous episode, you know, he's also talking about how, how we can use these new media in, in a really... Um, thoughtful way to to deal with things that might for many audiences be traumatic and what I'm really interested in about this conversation one of the many things I'm really interested in is how um, you know we could create this experience using VR that um, that might take difficult subject matter but treats it in a way that's really um, well thought out that provides spaces for reflection but that also you know the 
what virtual reality, what it affords us is this way, this um, kind of this, right, this realness, right, really putting us, um, or at least attempting to put us in, um, in a new experience or a new place. So um, I'm really excited about this conversation that we had with Paisley, because it, it reveals so much about what VR can do, what it could be, and how we might be able to expand, you know, kind of push the limits of this medium. Awesome. Let's get into it. Paisley Smith is a Canadian filmmaker and virtual reality creator based in Los Angeles and Vancouver. Smith is the creator of Homestay, a personal VR documentary produced by the NFB Interactive Studio with Jam 3. Homestay was selected for the IDFA Doc Lab 2017. Paisley is the recipient of the 2018 Sundance Institute and Robert Rauschenberg Foundation Fellowship for her forthcoming work, Unceded Territories, VR, a collaboration with acclaimed artist and VR pioneer Lawrence Paul Yaxwalupton, with support from Creative British Columbia. In addition, Paisley is a visiting artist at the University of Southern Interactive Media Division's Mobile and Environmental Media Lab. Smith holds an MFA from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts, and she's an admin of the thriving Women in VR AR Facebook group with over 10,000 members of the emerging technology community. Paisley, thank you for joining us on Museopunks. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. It's so great to have you here. So we're going to kick off with a bit of a discussion about museums and VR in and embodied experiences. But before we start, I'd really like to know why, as an artist, you are drawn to VR. What does the medium afford you? Why do you work in this space? Well, it's a very interesting question because when I first started in VR I actually just fell into working in the medium Um, so it kind of happened in a random way but the first time I tried VR and I experienced um, being in another world and just saw the possibilities of sharing stories in that way I was drawn to creating in that medium and even more so than experiencing it myself seeing other people's reactions to VR and when they came out of the projects that we were showing and their like their look was so intense like they'd gone on this great journey and come back to reality when they took the headset off that that moment of connection really made me curious about the medium and decide to kind of pursue it more seriously that's really fantastic i'm wondering when you're thinking about um, working in VR, are you using a kind of new or different kind of cinematic language uh, to create these experiences? Or is it more of a continuation of of kind of other media that you've worked with before? So I studied film and television production for my master's, and I've been making films since I was in high school. So I am very fluent in that language of traditional cinema. And so it for me, drawing on that experience has been very useful in creating virtual reality, but I've definitely had to change the way I approach thinking about story. So for me, rather than thinking about story in a straight visual sense, like the frame of a film, 
I would think about space and feeling of a space and, and your movement and what you're touching and can, does anything appear behind you? So not just thinking what's in front of you or what's visible, but what could emerge in these spaces and, and how they make you feel. I think that speaks to the language, but um, basically for me, that would be uh, in terms of like a traditional storyboard, for example, I wouldn't be just drawing it um, in the rectangle that we're used to. I would be uh, maybe doing a bird's eye view drawing and then mapping those things out and the movements of different things. I often compare it more to like dance, like dancers, I think, have a huge advantage in virtual reality because they're very familiar and natural in communicating space and movement in that way. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking right now about what you're saying and how it's about, um, you know, there's a little bit of space, the sense of um, you, you're thinking differently than a linear f- film because of space, and the feeling and the movement. It's a choreography um, in terms of kind of the audience for, for museo punks, for a podcast, for people who are, who are working spatially as well, right? We're thinking yeah. about exhibit design. Um, but uh, So I recommended to bring you on as a guest of Museo Punks, Punks because of um, a, a really fantastic and incredibly detailed account that you wrote um, on your blog um, about your experience in Alejandro Iñárritu's Academy Award-winning virtual reality installation, Carne y Arena. Um, I think it translates in English to flesh and, flesh and sand. Uh, and that it's been on view at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, among other places. Um, and I want to, to, to talk to you about this because I think you did a really amazing job explaining how a public space like a museum can activate um, a, a VR work, which kind of is this this medium that we're not sure how to deal with quite yet, right? Is it film? Is it art? Is it um, installation? Is it spatial, right? Uh, but maybe just to start, can you brief us? Can you give us a brief explanation of Carne y Arena and why you were so moved by this work? Sure. Yeah. So I'm actually um, just to give you some context. I work part time as a researcher for the Sundance Institute's New Frontier Story Lab. And so part of my job here is to research up and coming artists and to see what's new and cool in the space and emerging technology. And so like, I'm always trying to try new stuff and meet with people. And um, we are actually across the street from LACMA where the project is installed. Someone had a spare, these, these tickets have been super hot in LA and really hard to get your hands on. So that's uh, for me, a major VR issue in general is just like how to actually see these pieces when they're exhibited. And so I was super fortunate that uh, one of my colleagues couldn't use her ticket one day. So I got to go over there and I'd been wanting to go for like months prior to, to going with hence the very overly enthusiastic blog post after. (laughs) So I went over there and I honestly didn't know what to expect because I had, there's very limited information on the project in the, on the internet. Uh, there aren't any images from the inside of the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work um, for a company in Los Angeles called Emblematic Group, and that was founded by Nani de la Peña, who's known as the godmother of virtual reality. And when I was working with her, um, Inaratu's studio actually had come in and Nani had consulted on the project. So I knew that he was working on something. And Nani's work is primarily immersive journalism. So we would 
put you on location of a serious event that have, has occurred in the world and in order to kind of allow someone who's not there to connect with the material or to perhaps um, show them a perspective um, and to, you know, to, to share what's going on in the world. So the idea behind this piece in the sense of um, sharing the immigrant uh, experience with a wider audience was familiar to me, but I was not mentally prepared or I guess um, I wasn't with my experience in VR and the way I've seen works exhibited. This was totally um, spectacular version of that. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, in best case scenarios for VR viewing, you would have your project exhibited in a space, which is, you know, ideally um, a wide enough space to have walk around um, ability because a lot of these projects are fully immersive and have the ability to you know once you're in the virtual world roam and so that's an essential part of that so if you're if you if you're doing like a normal vr project having that space is essential and then on top of that you want to have um, someone who's there to kind of guide you or be a leader as you enter this virtual world and make sure that you don't walk into walls and who helps you if you're a new vr user get in and out of the experience and for me this person is an essential element of going into uh, projects especially immersive journalism for me can be very intense and heavy and you're seeing uh, a lot of often jarring images that you aren't you maybe aren't expecting and obviously there's like a reason for these things to have this element because it's what people are actually experiencing around the world. However, um, I think when you come out of those projects and you see the person who's, who's leading you through, it kind of can give you context so they can answer questions and help you kind of acclimatize to whatever you're experiencing. So I walked over there, I think it might've been like lunchtime or something. And I went by myself and I walked over there and I met uh, someone at the museum at LACMA who signed me in. They didn't really give me much information, but I did have to sign a waiver. Um, and I made note of this in the blog post, but I I've done so much VR and I don't think I've ever signed anything before. Yeah. So I was already thinking, that's interesting. Okay, I'm I'm a little nervous. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more than a trigger warning. It's like the next step after a trigger warning <laughs> really escalated. Totally. From that. Yeah. yeah. I was like, okay, um, is someone going to touch me? Like, is, you know, where am I going? Because I mean, the truth is with VR, you could really be doing almost anything, especially with really super advanced insulation with for example, something at LACMA, you don't know what they ca they're capable of. Like they could have touch interaction, they could have walkability, you know, many elements could be incorporated. I've done VR where the floors change and you're in, you're walking across like a fiery pit, you know what I mean? So you just don't know. Um, so in this piece, I get, I, I get to the location, they sign me in and then they give me a, a bit of a con of context. I will go in and read about the project in a dark room. And then when the bell rings, I will um, move into the next space and then I will be given instructions on what to do next. So the first room is kind of context. I'd like to think of this as kind of in a film, the credits, you know, you're kind of getting into the mood of the project, it's setting the tone. And so in that space, I read about why Inaratu decided to do this project, how, um, you know, the migrant and immigrant, um, moving into the United States, like their experience and how that has affected him as a Mexican American and, 
And so it gives him the context and when he started researching the project and all this and all the people involved. And actually he thanked uh, Nani in that area, which I thought was really nice. And so in that space, you kind of get, you get what you're, you kind of get a hint of what you're going to get into. So I'd say it was like the appetizer of the project. (laughs) So then the buzzer rings and I walk into this room and the first thing I notice, it's icy cold and it's super creepy. So it's, it's basically a big empty room with like long benches and there are shoes of people who are not there all over the floor. Like people have been left their shoes, like their belongings are there. And so honestly, right off the bat, I have a very creepy feeling like I'm in a place that I don't want to be and I feel trapped. Um, and the, the feeling of being very, very cold also was very, um, it really brought the story and the mood and the tone of the project to life. And just to clarify, you're physically in this room. You're not oh, in a yes. VR yeah, world yeah, sorry, yet, right? We're, we're looking at, at, yeah, you're in a room with real shoes there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So this is still in the real world. So I walked into this room. I mean, I guess in theory, you could have done this in a virtual space. I'm not, I, I think what really is amazing about this project is that they were using such a wide, um, they were given such a large uh, area to work with in the real world. And I think that's what's so incredible about this project. Yeah, uh, I think that's something we'd like to dig into a little bit more as well once we once we sort of get into this conversation. For sure. I, I'd love to talk about that. It's super interesting to me. Um, so you're in this icy room, this kind of like detention center waiting room where they have told me I'm, to, I'm supposed to wait for instruction. So I'm nervous. I'm, I'm wondering, is someone going to come in and talk to me? Is it going to be a voice on the intercom? Like what's going to happen? And so a voice actually comes into the room and says in a very cold way, uh, please remove your personal items uh, and your shoes. Please take your personal items and take your shoes off and put them in the locker. And so at the back wall of this room, there's a little kind of metallic locker that reminds me of kind of like either a kitchen, stainless steel, kind of industrial locker. So I was already totally in, in, in the world of this project and I was petrified. So I actually forgot to take off my socks, even though <laughs> they told me to do it. <laughs> and so I had my socks on for the whole project, which... You'll, you'll understand why that's kind of funny. But um, so I had my socks on and I put my stuff into the locker and I get ready to go into the next room and I wait for the buzzer. So the, the red light flashes signaling that I can move on to the next space. And so I get into this room and it's a massive, massive warehouse space. And it's darkly lit with a beautiful, ominous, orange and yellow kind of fiery lighting. That's coming from some, I believe, I mean, it's a bit of a, and my own imagination now at this point, but uh, what, what I can remember as some sort of neon or atmospheric lighting from somewhere in the space. And across the whole large warehouse space was dirt, like sandy dirt. And there are two LACMA attendants who, who are there and they say for me to come to where they are. And they said, you know, they don't actually even speak to me. They just put the headset on. And and in my blog post, I talk about this, like part of my job in VR has often been to show people VR. So I'm very familiar with how to put on a headset and like introduce people to what they're going to see and like kind of get them into the mood, which 
they were clearly trained not to talk to me because I was like trying to be funny and charming. And like, they were like, no, (laughs) don't talk to us. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I just won't, I'll go with it. So I put on the headset and instantly I'm transported to a virtual desert space. And this is when I just knew, like, it was just so powerful. You're in the um, desert and you're alone. And there are some small plants around, but basically it's pretty barren and there's not much there. After a while of kind of walking around. And so I should note that in this piece you're tethered. So you kind of wear this um, VR headset and you have a very long wire that follows you around, which is how you have tracking in the space and how you how the system knows where you are and how it all flows is because you're you're mapped to the space through the headset and so it's very cool to have a project with um room scale walkability like this space so i could really freely explore this desert how how big is this you could walk throughout the entire warehouse space um or was it um i've I've done vr experiences that might be like uh like a tiny New York bedroom space that you can walk yeah, in, right? Yeah, I would say like tr- probably, I, it felt like I had like a very vast space. I'm mm-hmm. sure it wasn't actually a whole warehouse, but it definitely felt like bigger than a New York apartment. It felt like at least two LA apartments. Like it, was, <laughs> nice. it, felt, it felt big. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, I mean, it might've been a little bit less. Like once you're in the headset, it's hard to tell how big things are because you're they're moving you and your perspective is changing based on what direction you're facing you know um so you can actually feel like you have a lot more space than you might but for example with something like the vive headset it would show you when you go outside of the space that you're allowed to walk in so that you don't hit a wall in your own apartment or something but this didn't have that it was all relying on the people I, I actually want to just break you at that point point, talk a little bit more about the people. One of the things that a, a few years ago um, there were a lot of conversations in the museum technology space about immersive theatre productions and, you know, as, as you're talking it really sounds like very similar to some of those sorts of things. There was the um, sort of the priming that happens before you enter the actual production space from, from the start. There were also the the human elements so thinking about you know the gentle tug on your backpack that you wrote about in the blog post when you were going out of range and you're talking now about how you sort of steered into the right direction I'd really like to talk or find out a little bit more about those human factors and those guiding interventions and even those questions of touch and consent and how um you know, you, you mentioned that you had a, a consent form at the start, but those, those human factors, those people sort of guiding you through this space, how did that play into this immersive environment? And was it, was it done in a way that was quite obvious or quite subtle? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, it definitely has something to do with immersive theatre. Like everyone who is in this project working for LACMA has definitely, from at least my assessment, has definitely definitely been trained not to try and engage with the people they're talking to. Like the idea here is to move people through either very quickly and efficiently, but also it speaks to the piece. And I actually was rereading my blog post um, regarding this point because 
you know, I had written, I had talked earlier about how much I love that part when you get to talk to someone after they come out of the headset. And at first, when I was thinking about this project, I really kind of wished I could have talked to those two people and asked them questions about their experience. And I wanted to talk to them. But the fact that I couldn't, and that they were not interested in talking to me, and that they had to be very efficient uh, with their um, they had to be very efficient with how they communicated with me actually, I think spoke to the experience of the project that they were trying to get across. Like migrants are taken to a holding space and not given much information. And on top of that, there's probably a language barrier. So communication between people is very limited. So I thought that in this instance, it really spoke to the experience and, and amplified the message that they were getting across. That frustration I felt was definitely um, heightened because of it. And so I thought it worked. But, you know, I think that they the way they did it was pretty respectful of the audience and 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 gave me an understanding of what they were doing. Like when they touched the backpack, when I was going out of range, it didn't, that didn't take me out of the experience. I actually felt relief, which um, is a privilege, in some, you know, because we're dealing with the, these really intense issues where like, you know, if you were an actual migrant, you wouldn't have someone who's like, they're secretly protecting you um, outside of your world. Like that's real. So um, those were moments where I recognized that I was not in danger and that, um, actually someone was looking out for me, which, you know, has a pros and cons to, to the point of the project, but yeah. Um, and as you say, it was touching a backpack, not the actual body as well. So there are ways yeah. of sort of navigating, um, how you maneuver someone through a space, but you're not also having to physically touch them for people who might not be comfortable with that. Exactly. Yeah. So that it's, I have, this is sounds like a humble brag, but one time at our own lab, Will Smith came into our studio <laughs> and I had to put the VR headset on him. And the VR headsets that we used at Emblematic Group when we first started were 3D printed and they looked like an alien headdress. Cause like at the top of it, there was basically three sticks that came out with different lights on the top and they had to be tightened onto your head with like a, I don't know what you would call it, but we had this thing that you had to like basically screw in the back to put on the head. So I had to be like, um, excuse me, Will Smith, um, is it okay if I touch your head now? <laughs> it was like one of those things where I was like, I will never forget this virtual reality experience. <laughs> yeah, there's something so intimate about virtual reality because you're you're putting yourself. If you're, for example, someone who's assisting, put on a headset, you are the one who is um, physically getting so close to their body, putting yeah. something on their head, which is one of the, like the most sensitive like points of the body. Uh, you are there kind of watching them and it, and I can imagine for someone who is, um, you know, a, a staff member who's tugging on the backpack while you're in Carne Arena, that like, you're also, you know, 
while uh, it's part of kind of your your actor or your character, right, your role to to seem like you're really cold and maybe like you might be treated if you were a migrant, really what you're doing there is caring for someone. And that's really fascinating. Totally. Yeah. I totally feel that. It is this weird intimacy that is created through technology. And I think the thing that's really weird to me about VR is that it's not really tapping into that in terms of like the marketing of this um, of this technology. Like I feel like there's a missed opportunity there in the way that we are communicating VR to people and, and the public audiences, people who don't know a lot about VR, you know? And then on top of that, when you take off the headset, you're staring right into someone's eyes. Like you're so close to them. And you, if someone's, it's, well, uh, the first time I did VR, I was terrified. First of all, I could see, I could, I knew that there were people in the room who were watching me do it. And so I was very hyper aware of my reality, but then also very aware of the virtual world. Yeah. And so navigating between those two worlds with my consciousness was really interesting. Um, I've always struggled with VR experiences in getting away from the physical world outside of the headset. I've always felt very self-conscious about it, like you described, but it seems like in this project, uh, the this new world starts um, far beyond the headset, right? It's starting in, in yeah. the, the three rooms that you enter before you put on the headset. Um, every little detail is immersing you deeper and deeper. And I really loved, I mean, I haven't had a chance to experience it myself. I tried going as, as you said, the tickets are really hard to get, but, um, but it's something that uh, I'm interested to see that blurring of the virtual world and the physical world. There's, there's also something that I think is quite interesting as we talk about this, that idea of vulnerability and trust that you're really handing over trust to, um, to not just the filmmaker, but also the people in the environment and in the context. And that's a very vulnerable place to be. And if you've never had one of these experiences before, um, or in fact, even if you have, there's something um, quite tenuous about the decision to basically be put into a context where you don't know what's happening outside of that VR world and and have that sense of trust within the environment and within the people. So it's not just about caring but also vulnerability. It makes me wonder with something like, you know, both this experience but also other VR experiences that are maybe successful, whether they play into that vulnerability, whether they actually lean into those feelings of discomfort or being on edge that people have just by handing over that trust to someone that they don't know. Yeah, and then one of the things that's come up a number of times and I've seen discussions about it is for example, when someone's in VR, photography of that person in VR and like mm. permission of using that image because technically their face isn't fully in it, but you're using, you're, you're taking liberty of capturing their image while they're in a different place, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's a conversation that's come out of there too on the other kind of end of that is, is um, consent when someone's in VR really know how maybe I'm maybe I'm losing a point here but I was just thinking about this whole process of of moving someone through VR and following them around because like all of the people at LACMA who were running us through these projects had to trail us 
with the VR headset uh, and the train essentially of wires that go behind you from the headset. And, and that whole process really, you get to know not just someone's, um, you kind of get to know someone's movement and how they feel, whether they feel safe in the space too. Like if, for example, in this project, there's this, at a certain point, a helicopter flies over you and in the real world, a giant f fan is blasting air at you. So all of a sudden, it's it's very shocking, and you can see the helicopter flying over you in the in the virtual world. And so my instinct is to get down on the ground, and they're also shouting at you, "Get down on the ground!" Like put your hands up, get on the ground. And so you know, for me, I'm fighting my knowledge of being in the real world uh, and staying standing because I know that nothing can actually happen to me. But on the other hand, if I want to fully embrace being in a virtual world and experiencing what they've designed for me to experience and on top of that the fear that is really inside of me when I hear someone screaming at me with guns saying get on the ground to so get on the ground so I did do that and then had to really talk myself out of my fear to actually get up and move around and explore the space while other people are still on the ground and so that really was playing with fear and and um and virtual versus real fear in that way that comes from VR, it, it, it was evoked. Um, Paisley, can we talk a little bit about then those physical sensations and those sorts of things? I mean, you talk about the fan with the helicopter, you talk about the cold. Um, I know one of the things from your blog post, one of the reasons it was so significant that you kept your socks on is that there was dust in the environment and throughout oh, yeah. the throughout the space. How much do you as a filmmaker think about those kinds of aspects of the display context? And when you've worked with museums, how much control have you had over those aspects of that exhibition or of that display? So... First of all, it was really interesting to do the experience in socks because it, it truly felt like I'd, I'd been wearing socks and shoes on this trip that I was on and had lost my shoes. And so I really mm. got the sense and the discomfort associated with dusty socks, like rocks in your socks and like carrying around these things that feel like a burden because like it would actually feel in some way better to have bare feet because... Um, I don't know. I was just very conscious of the fact that I was wearing, I was wearing them and not in some, on the one hand, not feeling the ground that it was, I was designed to feel, but on the other hand, like there was a sense of, um, uh, like not being in the right place. Hmm. Um, and so I thought that was a really special detail that they were able to, to, bring into this exhibition, which is a sense of touch and feel on the ground of this piece. I mean, to really bring it home was to have you f walking through the desert, you know, it, it, it really, it really brought the, the project to life in a way that was really unexpected for me. And I, I think it's a really, as a, as an artist, it's a huge privilege to have an exhibition space that would allow something like that because it is very rare to have that kind of liberty of design of your exhibition space. Um, the museum spaces that I've worked on projects that, and the exhibition of those projects, we've had some space to do design, but most of it has to be 
it's never for a permanent exhibition, for example. It's usually something that would be there for like a week or less than that. So, um, you know, we might be able to bring in some art department style um, props and signage and that kind of stuff. Um, and one of our exhibitions we did at the Sundance Film Festival was for Project Syria. And in that project, we had uh, signage from that we built to kind of look like it was on a street in Aleppo. And then we had uh, kind of a smaller scale of one of the things that I really liked about um, Inaratu's project was that there was a, an exhibition hall. Uh, in, in his piece, there's a, a reflection space where you can kind of... Uh, make sense of the project and come to terms with it. And there's a guest book you can sign. And that's what we did in a number of our installations. Um, we had a space with music where you could kind of collect your thoughts about the experience that you'd witnessed and, and reflect in. in the, and we had a space where you could write notes and then hang those notes um, onto a map of, of Syria and, and kind of connect with that pro, uh, the story and your thoughts in that way. So it kind of offered this kind of conclusion to the, the heightened experience emotions of the project and and in in this project at LACMA we had a similar space like first of all once you get out of the project you go down this dark hallway it's a new room so first of all you're allowed to clean off your feet and your hands of the dust which is a very nice touch I thought because there's a bench there and you can kind of sit there for a second and you know I actually was just like whoa like I was sweating profusely. I was like, okay, <laughs> I need to like sit here for a minute. And then you go into this next room. And as you walk down this hallway, it's super beautiful and very well designed. To your left, as you're facing forward, there are um, uh, basically LED screens that have been uh, positioned inside of what I would call like shadow boxes, but very deep shadow boxes. So you, you can't see what the light from each screen is and I'd say there's probably like six or seven screens that are embedded into this wall but you can't see what they are they are when you first walk into the room you have to physically walk forward to see what's on the screen and when you do you see the face of different people whose stories uh, are being told and as you go through this room and you listen to, well actually you read these stories because they're not they're not speaking you're just reading um, you realize that those are the people who you were traveling with in the desert and so that really brought the experience back home for me too, because I got to understand why certain things were happening in the project. For example, there's one guy who's with our group when uh, the border patrol kind of stops us and they're interrogating him, but he doesn't understand what they're saying because he doesn't speak the same dialect as anyone else. He doesn't speak Spanish. And so it was a, a really um, interesting experience to kind of make sense and draw the connections between these stories of real people and the virtual people that I'd been traveling with. And so anyways, this whole hallway and this experience kind of offered kind of a conclusion to the story. And then at the end of it, you're definitely, your heart rate's going down, you're making sense of it. You're coming to terms with the realism of the piece. And then there's a place where you can write in the guest book and reflect and share your own experiences and reactions to the piece. And I thought that was a really nice touch because you know whereas normally someone might have been there for you to talk to this guest book offered a place for you to kind of share your heightened emotions about the piece and and make sense of it so um yeah that's really that's really fantastic um and that that kind of reflection space at the end i think is so crucial and uh so, yeah giving that is 
part to me that seems like it's part of the piece itself is give or at least um from a museum educator perspective totally. people need that right yeah. to have a meaningful and and not totally like terrified traumatic experience from that yeah and you know what's really interesting is actually there's been some studies that come out have come out in the last little while that have been saying that jumping in and out of your experiences are actually pretty bad for your uh, vision. Um, so going directly from like a super, like the super real world to then going into like a virtual world that has a lot of action or bright lighting. These, these, um, these introductory spaces, like the homeroom kind of entry point into a VR piece and then the exit conclusion room even if they're in the virtual world, offer your eyesight the ability to kind of regulate, um, get back to some sort of normalcy before you go back into you, the real world, for example. Paisley, so, you know, yeah, I was that just going to say, <laughs> yeah, it makes total sense. It actually sounds like one of the things, one of the purposes for um, us doing the show is for museums to really be thinking about the conventions for display and for experiencing VR within the museum context. As, as we um, wrap up a little bit, one of the things I'd just love to know is what you think VR exhibitors are getting right and what they're getting wrong and 10 years from now, what you think we'll be doing to experience VR in a museum context. Well, I think the most important thing right now is that museums have these tools available for the public because as a VR creator and filmmaker, my biggest issue is that still so many of my friends haven't even tried the medium that I'm working in. And and unfortunately that means that like there's not really an audience for the work that we're making. And, you know, for example, Homestay I worked on for three years and it's a lot of late nights and tears and so much effort went into making it, but like I'm having the hardest time figuring out how to show it to people. And so museums offer a space that is, um, it frames it and gives it context. People have dedicated time to, they're, they're not, they understand that their sense of time is dedicated to being in the museum. And so a lot of the time with, you know, exhibiting on the go, for example, VR, AR, people are kind of like in the middle of something else or not really necessarily dedicating time to it. So this kind of offers a frame for understanding and processing the piece. And then also um, it solves just like a major, major accessibility issue. Um, and so that's like a major win. The fact that museums are open to this stuff and are including them in, in exhibitions and making it available. I think that's great. Um, I think there's a lot of room for uh, growth and experimentation within that. Like uh, obviously getting this kind of ex equipment is quite expensive and, and that makes it more challenging. But if they're open to trying, like having some sort of space where people can kind of freely experiment with different projects or try different things, that's really cool. And, and, and will allow the medium to become even better because when people start to see this stuff and actually experience it, it finally gives understanding to why it's cool. Like you can talk about VR all you want, but like until you go into a virtual world that takes your breath away or causes you to think when you get home and, and reflect on it, you can't really fully understand how cool or amazing it is as a medium. 
I mean, as a creative person, it's just like limitless the amount of stuff that you could do or create for people to experience. So that's really compelling. That's that's amazing. And I think um, that's a really good note for us to end on uh, that idea that museums can be the space to open up a new medium and new worlds to uh, to visitors. And that medium that we're talking about this time is virtual reality, but we've been doing this for years and years and years is kind of opening up uh, up new wonders. Um, So Paisley, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's been an amazing conversation and I have a hundred more questions I could ask you, uh, but but we are running out of time. So um, one last question to wrap up. If people want to learn more and get in touch with you, what would be the best way to contact you? I am very uh, reachable on the internet. I have a website, which is just paisleysmith.com. And you, I have an email. My email is on there. And you can send me an email or you can connect with me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, all, of those, all of those ways of getting in touch are great. And I wanted to say thank you to both of you for having me. It was so nice talking to you today. And it's so cool that you read the article and got in touch with me. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Paisley, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And I'm going to have to go back and listen to it all again and just take it in. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Desi, thank you so much for joining me today as a co-host on Museo Punks talking about VR experiences in museums. It has been so great to have your perspective and to have you really hold my hand virtually as we navigate this territory because I think <laughs> you uh, you bring such a thoughtfulness to the way that you've been approaching these questions and uh, approaching this topic. Well, thank you so much. It's really it's great to hear that. It's been um, an interesting thing for me to explore. Uh, you know, one thing that in in my role at, um, at the Warhol Museum, which I'm wrapping up right now, we've been thinking about, um, you know, Andy Warhol was an artist who always explored the new media of his time. So what would it mean for us to do a virtual reality experience? Um, and I think you really do need to probe these questions really deeply. It's not just about throwing um, anything up, but rather um, figuring out what kind of works for the story you want to tell and what does the media, um, the, the medium afford you. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And that, as you say, it's not just having a superficial engagement is not going to be the thing that makes a worthwhile museum experience of VR either, that we can't just be, experimentation is great and we should absolutely be doing it, but we also need to be aware that there are many factors that come into something like this, that it's not as simple as just creating the thing itself. There are many layers in terms of perspective within the films, but also those settings, those contexts, these questions about consent when putting the headset on people or allowing them to put on. There are multiple layers that come into what a successful VR experience is. Right. And what is the role of the museum within all of it? Right. Um, What, what, you know, especially when we think about something like um, uh, this is an artwork or an experience that requires such intimacy that invades, uh, that goes right into someone's more, most personal spaces. Um, so, so how can we as museums do this in a way that's um, respectful and ethical? Yeah, absolutely. It has been so great to talk to you now. 
I'm going to do a little shout out myself saying, hey, everyone, it turns out that Desi's going to be doing consulting work, so you should hire her. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was a a nicely timed coincidence to this podcast. It was not the heart of it, but I do think that uh, anyone whose interest has been piqued in Desi's thinking and her work now would be a good time to be uh, checking out what she's doing because she is available. Am I right? Yep. <laughs> That's fantastic. So we did cover in the last episode where people can get in contact with you. But in case anyone is listening to this episode who did not hear that episode, where can people find you? Uh, two ways that I think um, someone could best find me. The first is through Twitter. My handle is at Desi Gons, D-E-S-I-G-O-N-Z. Uh, you can also visit my website. It's Gonzalez, uh, Desi D-E-S-I. That is great. Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. You can connect with me on Twitter at Museo Punks or at ShinesLike and check out the extended show notes at museopunks.org. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher. Cheers. <laughs>